0: So, uh, we're in a series in the book of Mark, and so far we've been going pretty slow. You know, we've done two sermons already. We're still kind of in the beginning parts of of chapter one of the book of Mark. But today, all that's going to change because we are looking at several verses. We're going to look at verses 21 all the way through the end of the chapter, and we're going to look at every single verse. Now, I know some of you are saying, I'll believe it when I see it. but we're, we've got a lot to cover today. Thanks, Michael, for reading that long uh, passage of Scripture. There's a lot there, but here's why we're going to look at the whole thing. This is why we're looking at this big spread of verses. Uh, from Mark 21 all the way to the end of the chapter, we, we, we essentially have one 24-hour time period. And so what this is, essentially, is the day, one day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So what Mark is doing here is he's essentially trying to say, hey, look, this is what Jesus' ministry looked like at ground level. Uh, This is what Jesus did on sort of a daily basis. Uh, This was kind of what a a typical day looked like for Jesus. And, you know, it's important for us to see this because, you know, there was the bracelet in the 90s that said, what would Jesus do? Anybody have one of those, remember those? Well, here we've got a day where we know exactly what Jesus did. And uh, it's a typical day. Mark goes on to say, Jesus did this sort of thing all the time. And so what would Jesus do? Here we have a day where we see exactly what he did on a daily basis. And listen, Jesus is our Lord. And, you know, he's our master. We're following him. And so it's important for us, if we're going to follow in his footsteps, to know what he was about, you know? I mean, you look at this day, you learn, about, you know, learn something about his passions and how he spent his time and what was his priorities and and, you know, what, is, what his values were. And if we're following Jesus, how important is it for us to follow him, to get this window into what he was about? So today, uh, we're going to look at a day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, um, there's, I'm warning you, there's going to be a lot I'm going to cover today, a lot of information. We're going to begin just by going verse by verse. We're going to go through the, the day, and I'm going to give you tons of background information. And then we're going to step back, and I'm going to draw out some lessons, things we could learn from Jesus' day, and then finally, we're going to wrap it up. So, uh, let's just start out here, verse 21, a day in the life of Jesus. Mark begins like this, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. We'll stop there. I want you to notice four words. I want you to notice Capernaum, Sabbath, synagogue, and teach. So first, Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was uh, northwest of the Sea of Galilee. I think a map is going to come up there on the screen. You see there Capernaum, uh, northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And this is uh, several miles north from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. But I want you to think of Capernaum as Jesus' sort of home base for the few years that he was in the public eye. Uh, Most people think that uh, Jesus lived in uh, uh, Peter's house, there with his mother in law, um, there in Capernaum. This was sort of Jesus' base of operations throughout his ministry while he did his kingdom work. <clears throat> and so this is Capernaum. And then I want you to notice that G- the story begins on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is the Jewish day of worship and rest. It started at sundown on Friday night and went all the way to sundown on Saturday night because Jews measured time from sundown to sundown. And uh, so, so Jesus here is, is, is teaching on the Sabbath. This is a Jewish day of rest. And notice he's in the synagogue. What is a synagogue? Well, a synagogue is essentially the axis of Jewish life in the first century. So uh, children were educated in the synagogue all week long, and then on Saturday morning, the whole village would come together for the weekly synagogue service. And uh, what was the synagogue service? What did it look like? Well, it essentially had these four elements. Uh, It began with prayer, followed by a public reading of the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses. And then there was, following that, there was a public teaching, sort of somebody would get up and do what I'm doing now, teach and explain the Torah, the Bible, the Old Testament. And then it would end with a benediction. And what I want you to see here is this was a, this was a time that was essentially teaching focused. So it says here that, uh, you know, Jesus got up to teach. That's the next phrase. It's because this was what they did essentially in the, s- the synagogue. They would teach. And it's important for us to know that Jesus was a rabbi. I mean, uh, you know, Jesus was, a rabbi is essentially a teacher and this is what he did. And, you know, uh, synagogue was so interesting about it is there they were no um, hired leaders that uh, ran the ministry of the synagogue. It was run completely by volunteer. So you had sort of a ruler of the synagogue, but this was done on a volunteer basis. And, and they would, uh, if you were lucky, there'd be a visiting prominent rabbi who would come in and give the lesson for that day. And so today, uh, G- where we're looking at here, Jesus is the one who gets up, to teach, and he's here in the synagogue. I've got a picture of a first century synagogue. Hopefully, it'll come up on the screen. This is a synagogue that was in Capernaum. And this particular synagogue was built in the fourth century, so it's much later than the one that Jesus was in. But I want you to notice that on top that, this is a, a sort of a lighter synagogue on top of darker ruins. This is a dark a black basalt foundation. And it was set right on the original synagogue there in Capernaum. So what that means is that this synagogue, if you stood right there in the middle, which you could do today if you went to Israel, you'd be standing right where Jesus spoke here in Capernaum. It's pretty amazing. Love to go to Israel and do that. But here he was teaching in the synagogue. Now, notice that when Jesus taught, it says that he taught with authority. This is... um, Something that would have been absolutely different, um, and all the the people present would have noticed the difference. Uh, You know, a a rabbi was someone that, or a scribe, they would talk, you know, in synagogues, and think of them as sort of uh, Bible scholars, you know, they were experts in the Torah, sort of seminary professors, and, and the way they would teach, if you were a teacher of the Torah, you'd get up and you would quote other teachers of the Torah, and so essentially it would be like, here's, um, you know, Deuteronomy 5, and here's what Rabbi so-and-so says about this passage, and here's what the other Rabbi so-and-so says about this passage. If you've ever heard a Jewish uh, teaching, you know, you listen to them quoting all of these scholars, and at the end you're like, well, what, what do you think about what's, what's been said in this passage? But when Jesus got up, he, they heard something completely different. Jesus taught as one who had authority, not as the, as the scribes and the teachers of the law. And we know that in Matthew, Jesus would say something like this. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he would just lay down this straight up authoritative teaching from the Bible. And people were amazed at this. And this word authority, in Greek, it's the word exousia, and it's the word where we get our word author from. Author comes from exousia. And literally it meant out of the original stuff. And so when people listened to Jesus, he wasn't just clarifying what they already knew. His listeners sensed that somehow he was explaining the story of the world as the author. and They were amazed at his teaching. It was so different from all the other teachers. Now, notice what happens next. Jesus' is teaching and then it says, immediately in their synagogue, this is verse 23, there was a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, so what happens? Jesus is teaching, and then immediately a man with an unclean spirit runs into the synagogue. Now, uh, when, he, when it says here, unclean spirit, this is, this is talking about a man with a demon a man with a demon, Um, and and as he came in here, notice that he looks at Jesus, and he's immediately threatened. He's scared to death of Jesus, and well, he should be. Jesus is encroaching on his turf. You know, the the kingdom of God is breaking into the world, and here is Jesus Christ breaking into this demon's territory, and he's furious, and he's terrified. And what's amazing in the book of Mark is when you look at the demon's uh, all the way through the book of Mark, nobody knows who Jesus is. All the people are confused about who he is. The demons are the only one who know exactly who Jesus is. And notice he begins to name Jesus. He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, what's going on there? Well, in the ancient world, when you encountered a spiritual adversary, they believed that one of the ways to gain tactical control over your adversary was to name them and to give their rank in sort of the spiritual hierarchy Um, in sort of the demonic realm and so what this demon is trying to do is gain control over Jesus he's trying to get tactical spiritual advantage but notice it doesn't work what does Jesus do he looks at the demon and he says be quiet come out of him essentially Jesus says shut up get out it's not working for this demon and this, you know, we read, but we read this and we think, well, of course, this is Jesus. This is what he does. But this would have been unheard of in the ancient world. This would have been absolutely unheard of. When you look at the ancient world, uh, there were rabbinic writings about exorcism. And uh, demonization was something of an epidemic of the, in the ancient world, like it is in some parts of our world today. And the rabbis had manuals, long, verbose, manuals on how to cast out demons and they looked almost like magic manuals. They were filled with incantations and rituals and things that they would do to get rid of demons and so they would always you know call upon higher authorities and so they might call upon Solomon who's a you know famous Old Testament figure calling the authority of Isaiah to cast out the demon. And they would use all these sort of crazy rituals, and so they might go to a victim and hold up feces in front of the victim's nose to get the demon to come out. Or they might, might pour water over the victim's head to clean out the demon. Or there was another practice where they might drill a hole in the skull of a person to let the demon out. And, um, yeah, and then the person, if they survived something like this, would wear that little piece of bone as an amulet around their neck. And what's interesting, there's even actually graveyards that have been dug up at this time where there are several people with holes in their skull. And so this is what they're doing. You know, most of the rabbis, they had to do all this rigmarole and all these incantations and, and things to get the demon out. And Jesus, everybody's amazed because he just looks at the man and says, shut up, get out now. You know, there's no Harry Potter going on. You know, there's no uh, you know, divination or incantation or spells or anything like that. It's just out. And notice, people are absolutely floored. And it says at once, 28, his fame spread everywhere throughout the sur- surrounding region of Galilee. Now, Capernaum was on a north-south uh, trade route. And so if something happened in Capernaum, news would spread like wildfire. And so uh, news of who Jesus was, was spread like a flash throughout the Mediterranean world. He became incredibly popular. But let's keep on reading. D- Jesus' day is not over. It's, in fact, it's just getting started. Uh, look at verse 29. Jesus leaves the synagogue, and now what takes place is he goes into the house of Simon, Peter, and Andrew. And let's read. It says, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with the fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve him. And so Jesus is in the house of of Simon and Andrew and he's ministering to his mother-in-law. Now in Capernaum and in this sort of region of Galilee, there was no such thing as a single family dwelling. Uh, People uh, lived in what was called an insula complex. What was that? That was a complex or sort of like a compound where you would have four homes all clustered together, and the whole extended family would live in this home, and so upwards of like 50 or 60 people would live in these things, and you would have like, you know, your your family and your in-law's family and your brother's and their family, and everybody is is in this. Now, some of you can't imagine anything like that. Was it a good thing to live with your mother-in-law? No comment from this guy. Um, But but this is what it was. This huge extended family all living together. In the middle of these four houses was sort of an open-air courtyard where they would do their laundry and their cooking and their socializing just right there in the middle of this sort of compound. And so here Jesus is, and and they invite Jesus in, and they they tell him about this uh, mother-in-law who's ill with the fever. You know, Jesus has exousia, Jesus has authority. They've seen him cast out demons, and they think, well, he must have power over illness. And so they bring him this woman who's got a fever. Now, in the ancient world, a fever was a life-threatening illness. You know, we get a fever, we take ibuprofen. But in in that day and age, like, this was life-threatening. This woman's life was on the line. They bring her to Jesus, and what does he do? It says that he healed the mother-in-law. And then it says that she immediately got up and began to serve them, which is how it should be, right? I'm just kidding, 110%, uh, 110%. It's not like mother-in-law, you're better, get into the kitchen. Uh, Don't read this as sexist at all. I want you to read this as absolutely total and complete healing of body and soul. Right, she's healed and he doesn't just restore her to maintenance mode, but this is, this is about full, full flourishing. She is made into the person that God has created her to be. She gets up and she serves Jesus. So this is incredible healing. And it takes place here in uh, Peter's mother-in-law's house. And notice here, it says that um, when he had healed them, it says that um, in verse 39, he went through all Galilee preaching, oh, I'm sorry, let's go back to 34, And um, as he healed, um, verse 32, sorry. (laughs) And evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathering together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because, again, they knew him. So news is traveling fast. It's the end of the Sabbath day. The sun has gone down, and so people are free to run to the house, and people do. People, hundreds of people showing up on Simon Peter's front yard. And Jesus begins to heal them. And he's staying up late into the night, healing people who are demon possessed and sick, and probably meeting all sorts of crazy people who are saying all sorts of weird things. But Jesus is caring for their needs late into the night. But then notice it says in verse 35, the story keeps going. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went into a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went out throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And so after a long night of hard work, what what does Jesus do? Does he sleep in? No, he gets up early in the morning, and it says that he goes to a desolate place. And this is the word for wilderness or desert. It's all the way through chapter one of the book of Mark. Um, He's out there in the desert and he's there to get away to pray. Now notice Simon Peter, who's sort of acting as Jesus' PR man, uh, you know, his stage manager, runs out and says, Jesus, what are you doing? What are you doing out here? You're blowing up in Capernaum. You know, you're trending all over Twitter. You know, New York Times is on the phone. Jimmy Kimmel wants an interview. Uh, You know, Rolling Stone wants to talk to you. And Jesus says, No, he says, I'm not gonna stay here. He comes out of his time of prayer and he says, we're gonna go to the next town because I am here to preach. This is why I have come. So Jesus comes out of this time of prayer with incredible focus, incredible energy, incredible clarity. And it says here that he went around and essentially did the same thing all over over Galilee. Galilee. So essentially, this is a typical day for Jesus. Uh, this is what he did. This was his rhythm. This is what he was all about. And so we're gonna stop there. We're gonna finish the chapter uh, in a few minutes, but we're gonna stop there. And I wanna give you three things about a day in the life of Jesus. All right, we've gone through the story. Now I wanna step back. I wanna give us three lessons that we can learn by looking at this day in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the first one. <clears throat> I want you to notice that Jesus balanced his time between the synagogue and the home. He balanced his time between the synagogue and the home. So in other words, Jesus did his work both in the gathering of God's people, in a big building with, you know, with prayers and teaching, but he also did his work in homes in his mother-in-law's atrium you know, throughout the week. Or in other words, Jesus was all about the both and. He was all about doing work in the gathering community of faith, he was also about doing work in the scattering throughout the week of the community of faith. Jesus was about doing both. In other words, um, as Christian always tells us in Discovery, Jesus had a rhythm in his life. It was a rhythm of worship in the, sa- in the synagogue Saturday, and then worship throughout the week in his neighborhood, in, in his house, uh, among the people of Galilee. And this might challenge people who don't like going to church. Frankly, there's a myth right now that Jesus was sort of a sort of 1st century traveling hipster. Like, you know, he he was you know, like he was this very anti-established guy who didn't like organized worship or organized religion. He just kind of wandered around and and, you know, read poetry and spoke prophetically against the establishment. But notice here Jesus Christ begins his ministry in the synagogue. This is not a guy who is against the organized worship of God. He was there on Sunday or Saturday. Corporate worship was a huge value for him. And you know, it's popular for for people to say today, you know, corporate worship, church is not all that important. You know, uh, I read a blog the other day that actually said, um, Jesus was not about information, he was about transformation. Now, you think about that. I mean, sure, I mean, Jesus was about transformation, for sure, absolutely. But listen, Jesus was a rabbi, and rabbis taught. And Jesus was all about the local synagogue. He was not one who said, look, I don't need church. I don't need another lecture. All I need to do is sit with my Bible at home in the woods. Jesus was all about the local church. In fact, Jesus believed it was really important for him to get that sort of, uh, uh, you know, service of worship and prayer and teaching and confession and benediction. I mean, this was something that he thought fed his soul and fed the souls of others. He was all about gathering in the local community. The question is, are we? Do we value the local church? Now, all of you are here, so I assume you do. But is, is it something that we make a priority? Because things happen here. Jesus does work here in a very special way that doesn't happen anywhere else. You know, there's this preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, from about a century ago. And he was this amazing preacher. I love his sermons. And he was right at the time where they were starting to record messages. And he wouldn't let anybody record him. And they said, look, this is technology. You've got to let people record you. And he says, no, no, no. I don't want people to miss out on the whole service. And he used to say, if they just listen to a recording, they're gonna miss the thunder and the lightning. And so listen, there is healing and there is power and there is thunder and lightning that happens in the gathered community as we confess our faith, as we listen to teaching, as we pray corporately. God is doing, Jesus is doing work here. And I don't want you to miss out. And so are we prioritizing the gathered community community of corporate worship, but also Jesus wasn't just about that. Jesus also did work throughout the week. Now, notice here that Jesus uh, spends almost, probably more time in the home of Simon and Andrew, ministering not only to Simon's mother-in-law, but everybody else, hundreds of people on his front, you know, porch. And so for Jesus, his home was almost an outpost. It was almost a base of ministry and mission. And so, do, listen, we're all about the both-and here. We're not just about the gathering community and Jesus is only here. Jesus is also in your neighborhood. Jesus is also in your dorm room if you're a college student. Uh, Jesus is also in, uh, around your dinner table when you're with your kids. You don't want to miss out on that either. And I was younger. I used to, when I was first a Christian, I was one of those Christians that showed up at church every time they opened the door. And they probably got kind of sick of me, actually. Because I was there on Monday night for a Bible study. I was there for Wednesday night for a Bible study. I was there, they had a Friday night Bible study. I was there Sunday morning, Sunday night. I was there every time they opened the door. And it's because I thought, this is where Jesus is. But the problem is I was missing what Jesus was doing throughout the rest of the week. And at our church, we kind of, I mean, tonight we're having a big event, you know, a big chili cook-off. Come, please. But we try to keep the program stuff low. Because we don't want to keep coop you up in this bubble all week long. Jesus is doing stuff out there in your small groups, around your dinner tables, in your neighborhoods, and don't miss out on the scattering of God's people throughout the week. You see, Jesus was about both and gathering, scattering, scattering. <laughs> what is that? He was all about doing work in the synagogue, but also he didn't miss opportunities around the dinner table or in his dorm room or wherever he was, you know, in the airstream, out in the atrium. And so Jesus balanced his time between the synagogue and the home. Here's the second lesson. Uh, Jesus balanced his time between public ministry and private devotion. This kind of goes without saying, but if you look at the text here, notice, remember when Jesus, he was was blowing up, you know, he's all over Twitter, and people were vying for his attention. Everybody wanted to meet with him. Everybody wanted an opportunity to talk to him. Incredibly popular, incredibly busy, incredible opportunity. And when you're in those times of busyness and opportunity, you almost think, like, I don't have any time to just sort of do nothing. I need to just be busy. I need to be about strategy and taking advantage of everything that's out there. And so here Jesus is super busy, but notice he carves out time to get away in solitude to pray. In other words, he doesn't let his busyness crowd out his prayer life. After a long, hard, busy, frenetic day, he gets up early to pray. Now listen, if I was up late at night healing all of you guys, And casting out demons out of all of you guys. Listen, I'm going to sleep in in the morning. You know, I'm going to get up late. I'm going to check, you know, New York Times on my phone or whatever. But Jesus got up early and he carved out space to pray. And so here's the question for us. Are we doing the same thing? He's our Lord. He's our master. This is his day. Are we daily carving out time to get alone with our Father? And I want to challenge us here because, I mean, so many of us miss this. So many of us, because I do. And I was talking to my wife. She does, too. And if you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad or you're a busy businessman or you're, you're somebody who's out in the community, it is so easy to just sort of let this personal space go, time alone with God. You need to carve it out and protect it. You know, here Peter is saying, Jesus, what are you doing? You don't have time to do this. And Jesus says, no. I'm going to carve out space, I'm going to get alone with God to pray. Now notice this, if Jesus was the Son of God, and here we are flawed people, and Jesus was the perfect Son of God, if he felt like he needed to get alone with God to pray, how much more do we? How much more do we need to get alone with God to pray? And listen, in our age where we are addicted to busyness, and we are addicted to work, and we're addicted to technology, and we're addicted to, to entertainment, Netflix, all that kind of stuff. I think it's a prophetic thing for us to do as Christians, to take the you know, buds out of our ears and to unplug our iPhone and just get away and to pray, to carve out that space on a weekly basis, a daily basis, to be alone with our Father. Now, why do we need to do this? It's because when you get alone with God, you get vision, when you get alone with God, you get clarity. When you get alone with God, you get focus. You, you can tell the difference between the good and the great, the good and the absolutely essential. It's no you know, uh, accident here that Jesus comes out of this time with incredible clarity and focus. He says, no, I know there's people all over the place, but I need to move on. I need to go. There are things that I need to do. And you see, he got that from being alone with God in that space. And I want to emphasize here that we need to pray as well because, you know, we often think, well, you know, we're Bible people. We like to get away with our moleskin and our Bibles and read. But listen, this is years before Mr. Gutenberg. Jesus didn't have a Bible. Jesus was out there, just him and God. And yes, he had the Bible memorized, but he was talking to God. He was getting stuff off his chest. He was getting clarity and vision, and we need to do that too. And so he's dividing his time between busyness and solitude, between frenetic energy and stopping everything to pray. Finally, one more lesson from the life of Jesus Jesus balanced his time between teaching and healing. Jesus balanced his time between teaching and healing. Or, in other words, Jesus balanced his ministry between word and deed, between word and deed. So the first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue and he's teaching. And then he goes on and he says, he says, this is the reason why I came. But notice he's not just teaching. He's also out there doing deeds of compassion. He's not only there, you know, uh, preaching the word and calling people to conversion and doing evangelism. Jesus is also out there caring for the social and emotional and economic needs of people in the world. He was about word and deed. In other words, Jesus was doing holistic ministry. And if we're going to embody what Jesus did in his ministry, then we ought to be doing that too. And so here's the question. I always wrestle with this as a church, as a church family, but also we ought to wrestle with this as individuals. Are we people who do holistic ministry? Are we just preaching the word without doing any deeds? Or are we just doing deeds without, without ever opening up our mouths? Jesus always, whenever there was words, it always came with deeds. Whenever there were deeds, it always came with words. Jesus was all about holistic ministry. Now, in the church today, I think that, you know, a lot of conservative churches tend to be about the word. You know, we're all about calling people to conversion and evangelism. But so often, conservative churches miss out on on social work, for lack of a better word, for caring for the needs of the poor. I grew up in a church that was kind of like this, and it was, the pastor, I mean, I don't want to fault him too much, he was an evangelist, but we had um, crusades, outreach crusades, he preached the gospel, Bible studies four times a week. We hardly did anything for the poor. I don't want to say nothing, we did some things, but it really wasn't an emphasis, it was way more big on word than deed. And I remember this pastor, uh, in one of his sermons, he explained why. He said, listen, I am he- we as Christians are here to care about people's souls, not their bodies. What I want you to see here is that Jesus is caring for people's souls and their bodies, right? His mother, the, Peter's mother-in-law gets up in holistic healing. Are we about the same thing? Is there a mix of word and deed? And we can think about this on the corporate level or even just in your individual life in your neighborhood. You know, I used to have a friend who would go to a restaurant and instead of uh, giving the waitress a tip, he would give her a gospel tract. <laughs> like how offensive is that? That is is word without deed. And we don't want to be those people that are out just preaching the gospel who have no care about people's physical bodies and what's going on in their lives. So he balances ministry between word and deed. And let's just finish the chapter here. We're almost done, but there's kind of a great little example of this right at the very end with this leper. Notice it says in verse 40, and a leper came to him imploring him and kneeling down said to him, if you can, you could make me clean. If you're willing you could make me clean moved with pity he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him I will be clean and immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him see that you say nothing to anyone but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing for what Moses commanded for a proof to them but he went out and began to speak freely about it. I love it. He doesn't obey Jesus. He just starts telling everybody, and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in a desolate place, and people were coming to him from everywhere. Notice Jesus, in this instance, does holistic healing. Notice this was a leper, and a leper in those days is somebody who had a physical illness, like they would get boils on their body and Fingers and toes would fall off. They would look very monstrous. I mean, it was a horrible physical condition that you'd have incredible pain until you died a decade after you contracted it. But this was not just a physical condition. This was also a social situation because if you were a leper, you were ostracized from the community, right? If you came within 50 feet of a person, you'd have to yell out, unclean, unclean! And they would send you outside of the camp in a leper colony, so it was incredibly lonely. It was isolating. It was this horrible social situation. And on top of that, there was a spiritual component where you couldn't go to the synagogue. You couldn't go to temple. And what does Jesus do in this situation? He goes to this man. who's saying, Jesus, if you're willing, if you're able, if you've got any authority at all, I know that you do. If you're willing, I know you could make me clean. And Jesus goes right into his situation and touches the leper, as no other rabbi would have done. And immediately at that instance, this man is absolutely holistically healed. And so as we end there, I I just want us to, to sort of think about this. I mean, Jesus is here. Just as Jesus was there in the synagogue teaching and healing, Jesus is here teaching and healing. And listen, so much of this holistic ministry, you know, listen, we're going to all be healed one day when Christ returns. But even now in our lives, there are many of you this morning who are suffering physically. And there are many of you this morning who are suffering spiritually in some sort of addiction or other sort of pattern. There are others of, of, of you that are suffering emotionally and socially where your relationships are not right and, and you know, just, you're just not whole this morning. I want to end today by just, let's just bow our heads and I just want to recognize that Jesus Christ wants to do his work and if you're here this morning as, as your eyes everybody's eyes are closed and your heads are bowed, if you have a need this morning, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, I want you to just raise your hand because I want to pray for you. listen, Jesus Christ is here, and every single one of us is broken and there are some of us here who are are, are you've got some sort of illness and there are others of us here who are suffering with broken marriages and broken relationships. Jesus Christ says, this is why I have come. Both preaching in word and in deed. So if that's you, I want you to raise your hand and um, I'm going to just pray f- that Jesus Christ would do his work. Father, we thank you that Lord, you model for us a word indeed ministry. You model for us a life of balance, Lord, where we're here at church but we're also getting alone, we're We're with our families and our homes. And God, in all of that, we want to acknowledge that many of us are broken. And Jesus, we need more than just for you to model for us. We need you to heal us. And so this morning, I pray for all of those who in faith are coming to you like this leper. And they're saying, Jesus, have mercy on us. We're struggling with illness. We're struggling. We need your healing. God, we we cry out for you this morning. Thank you that you took our stripes. Lord, you took our sin upon yourself. You were crucified outside of the city so that you might bring us in and make us whole. We pray that you would do that for us this morning. In Jesus' name.